everybody to School Psych Podcast. My name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist in Maryland. We are so happy to have Dr. Malone back again. Anytime we have returning guests that, that come on and experience us one time and then are willing to go through it again, we're especially pleased that um, she agreed to come back on. Um, and a great topic. And I definitely um, think that this will be helpful to a lot of people. So we've got some exciting things going on. Um, but I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca, who is going to introduce us um, and tell you a little bit of how to, how to participate tonight. And Rebecca, I also see that you have a change in scenery behind you. So maybe you want to talk a little bit about that too. <laughs> sure. Yes. I, I was trying to make it not look so bleak with my empty shelves <laughs> um, and just my blank wall, but I am in the process of moving. So m the moving truck has come and take taken all of my things uh, to Florida. I'm moving from Connecticut to Florida, which is a really big deal for me because I've lived my entire life, including my um, uh, undergrad and graduate school programs in either New York or Connecticut. So I'm very excited, but it's also like a little uh, disorienting and I'll, I'll move on Friday. And I'm also, um, I'm going to continue to work at my current school as a consultant very on a very um, part-time basis, but I'm starting a graduate program in clinical psychology. So that's also very exciting and um, different. And um, I'm looking forward to like a little tra trade-off in types of stress, because if my paper isn't, you know, excellent, at least nobody gets hurt, <laughs> you know. So I'm excited uh, for to be a student again for for quite a while. And so I'm going to Nova Southeastern. So anyone out there who is a Nova grad or a Nova student, please shoot me a message. And also, if you're watching us live, I'd love to tell you how to participate so that you can join us in the conversation with the wonderful Dr. Malone. If you're watching live, sign into your YouTube account and you can comment right alongside the video. You can also reach out to us in messages on the two Facebook pages, School Psyched, Your School Psychologist, or the School Psych podcast page, our dedicated podcast page. And you can tweet at us on Twitter using the hashtag Psyched Podcast. I'll be looking for notifications, whether you're watching live or later during the week. Please let us know what you're thinking, how your summer is going or your school year is ending, um, and uh, anything else you'd like to add to our conversation. We look forward to hearing from you. And now I'm going to hand it over to Eric, who's going to introduce our wonderful guest. Thank you, Rebecca. Well, we are excited to have Dr. Celeste Malone with us again. Uh, we always enjoy speaking with her and hearing the wonderful things that she has to say. And uh, she has such a great perspective on the profession and so much just about psychology itself and people. Um, so we're excited to, to speak with her and listen to her this evening. Uh, just a little bit about Dr. Celeste Malone. She's an associate professor of uh, school psychology at Howard University and coordinator of the school psychology program. And um, most recently, she will be the incoming president of the National Association of School Psychologists. So we're so excited um, for that for her this coming year. So uh, Dr. Malone um, is going to speak with us tonight about healing and her theme um, for NASP this year also has to do with hope and healing. So um, we'll speak with her about that as well. And I think it's very appropriate, you know, today being Father's Day, um, so many people have 
not only the celebratory aspects of Father's Day, but also um, sometimes grief and sometimes loss and uh, pain along with family relationships. Um, and today is also Juneteenth. Um, so the, the day when the last of the enslaved people in the U.S. found out about emancipation. And so it's a celebration as well. But what comes with that is that history uh, and pain as well. So um, so a lot of healing, not just uh, for those topics, but I think it's appropriate uh, today, and especially uh, given the school years that we've had and um, all of the things that the pandemic has uncovered and revealed, so many things. So um, Dr. Malone, welcome. And we're so excited to have you here and um, just want to begin talking about uh, healing and, um, oh, you see Nick is here. I love uh, when Nick chimes in. So happy Father's Day, Nick. Happy Juneteenth. And um, welcome, Dr. Malone. Thank you so much for having me again. It's been a while. and I know so much that the world has changed so much. The platform that you're using has changed as well. But it's great to have the opportunity to be in community with you all to talk about school psychology. And then also in particular, the theme for my presidential year and healing in general within the profession of school psychology. And Eric, as you highlighted, we definitely need healing right now. When we think about everything for the past two years, dealing with COVID, the racial reckoning and uprisings in the country, and then the pendulum swing the other way that we went from Black Lives Matter being the largest protest movement in the United States to going completely the opposite direction where we're hearing the bans on critical race theory or any conversations about culture, race, gender, gender identity. Our schools are becoming more, and this may seem like a strong word, but it feels like it's becoming a more hostile environment, not just to the students who were there, but then also to the adults who are working in those buildings. Because in the beginning of the pandemic, educators were lauded and everyone was applauding the job that the adults in the school building were doing. They had their kids home, like, oh my goodness, this is so challenging. But again, that complete 180 where educators are being villainized. So the idea of healing and restoration is something that's very much needed for the profession of school psychology when we think about helping the kids and the families that we support, but it's pretty clear that we need healing as well as school psychologists. In thinking about the work that we do, the conditions under which we do it, that right now it's not tenable and something has to give. And I know that there are other psychologists and scholars who talk about the concept of healing. I will gladly echo and amplify their work as well because that's a conversation that we need to have right now. We've been coping for a very, very long time, but with coping, it just helps you to navigate maladaptive circumstances. It doesn't actually change the circumstances or the stressor. So you're just having those skills to get by. I know that for myself, getting to the end of the semester and counting those days and weeks with my students, everyone had to count down to the end of the semester. I know for pre-K through 12 educators, it's a countdown to the end of the school year. We're all tired and we've been working our best to cope through the current circumstances, but we need to reframe it to focus on healing because healing changes the things that harm us. It 
it changes the circumstances so that we're not just coping and managing with what's coming at us, but rather how do we remove the stress? How do we change the things that are harming us in the first place? And so I'm looking forward over the next year to have those conversations within school psychology to think about the way that we practice, to think about changes that we need to make to the profession itself. Wow, uh, it's just fantastic vision. And I, I personally connect with so much uh, that you said, it was a hard school year, you know, it just, to me kind of felt like it wasn't gonna end. And even as we got closer, I was just like, you know, felt like I was out of breath, <laughs> you know, emotionally. Um, so it, it just, that sense of stress, I think is, is palpable for all of us in the field. For sure. And I echo that too. It was, it's been I think, you know, hard two and a half years, three years um, in schools. And because we care so much and, and so many of our students and our teachers and our colleagues, you know, had times where they weren't well and they weren't doing well. It, it's just um, has been a really exhausting time. And I wonder what, what do you think, how do, how do we even begin? You know, we, we think about, um, you know, resilience after crisis, after school crisis, and we think about um, self-care as necessary ingredients for kind of coming out of this difficult time. But what do you think is, is one thing that we should kind of set our eyes on as, in terms of a, a profession? Sure. And, and so I'll talk a little bit more about the tenets of healing in a bit, but in direct response to your question, I hear the word resilience. And that's a word that we use a lot when we talk about kids who've had challenging circumstances. We think about adversity and, oh my goodness, how resilient you are. But again, resilience speaks to that coping piece. And students, we students, adults, we need to develop those skills so individuals are resilient. But from a healing perspective, we also consider the ways that people have been resistant. And we don't look at resistance as a negative thing. And we often talk about it in the negative as psychologists, as school psychologists, what may come to mind as a consultee, for instance, that, oh, their resistance to engaging in the consultation process or going with the intervention plan or students who are resistant, that they're just not listening or adhering to our directions. But within healing, we recognize that resistance is just as important to cultivate as resilience. When we look at the circumstances that are causing us harm, and it's all ultimately rooted to oppression in its multiple forms, it's not just about coping, but there's things that we do to actively push back against the, against the challenges that are facing us, right? And when we consider the oppression that our students encounter, when we consider the attacks on the profession, we don't just try to cope with it, we're pushing back against that and talking about what school psychology actually is and the impact that we make on kids and clearing up misconceptions around social emotional learning and mental health screenings. 
both of which have been caught up in the anti-CRT umbrella to say that this is something we shouldn't do. But we don't just take that. Again, we resist. And so what is it that I would like people to remember in this course of the school year that you survived it and that there were things that were challenging that you didn't always go along with and that you pushed back in some way, shape or form against the circumstances that were limiting your ability to do your best work, or you resisted against the circumstances or processes that may have been harming children. For students, they have resisted against negative stereotypes, expectations um, that have challenged them also. And so within that, let's highlight and acknowledge the ways that we push back, that our strength isn't a bad thing, and that we need to be as deliberate about looking at the ways that people have survived and been resistant and not just solely praising their resilience, which is around coping. I, I love that. And it strikes me as you're talking um, in, in the training of school psychologists, we're often, you know, so focused on systems and, um, and the we, the, the all of us and, and, and changing things together. Yet when we think about, resilience, we often think about individual people, you know, ourselves, mm -hmm. our students. And, and I really do think that we, we need to come back to this collective view of not only um, resilience and coping, but of healing together. And, um, and I hope for, hopefully we'll talk about the theme of your NAS presidency, um, because I think it's just such a beautiful way to encapsulate that. And thank you for emphasizing the collectivist piece as well, because that's very much one of the tenets of healing. Because when we're looking to heal, we're changing those environments, right? But we're not just changing environments because it'll impact me directly. But when we make the school environments better, particularly for our most marginalized youth, everybody benefits. And so taking that shift from what is best for the individual student but if we are able to repair the harm and change the circumstances, we are able to benefit all students. And even um, when we think about how we engage in change work, we may not see the immediate results, but we know that we are engaging in something that is bigger than ourselves. That, that speaks to collectivism also, that it doesn't have to have a direct benefit to you, but you're doing this for the benefit of the collective. I've seen in the past two years how, and I never really paid attention to it, honestly, um, before, but how important school boards and elections and, and things of that nature, because, yeah, I've seen all these things come to a head in my own school board, and I'd never, you know, tuned in to watch maybe school board meetings before the past two years when all of a sudden, you know, you, you start to realize what's going on around you and, and how kind of dysfunctional a lot of a lot of this is and it's made me yeah become a little bit more aware of of, of that and you know voting and being involved and the unions had you know rallies and things like that and it's so important and I think that um, sometimes we you know I myself know that I get caught up in other things and kind of lose that perspective. And um, so these past two years have kind of <laughs> thrust that into my vision there. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, 
Engaging in advocacy, social justice advocacy, as well as public policy advocacy is a key part of healing because of the systems that you highlighted. And that's a conversation that I think we need to continue to lean into more in school psychology, particularly in our training programs that I know within our professional association level, hopefully people get the action alerts from NASP. There was one that came out a couple of days ago with regards to the gun control bill that's currently in the Senate and getting folks to speak up. But a lot of times it's disconnect. We look at that as a leadership piece, as opposed to advocacy being a core part of school psychology practice. And we need to change those conversations as well as our fear of tiptoeing into things that are considered to be political. Our jobs are inherently political, that the vast majority of school psychologists are employed in public school settings. So that's that, um, what, what we are able to do. And I think that everyone is increasingly more aware of this than they were before. What we do as school psychologists is dictated by individuals who are not school psychologists and is codified within our state and local laws and policies. So of course we need to be involved in that because again, our jobs are inherent, po inherently political because of the system that we're in. But then even taking it a step further in terms of the importance of school psychologists being comfortable with being political, identities are politicized. That's something that has always been the case. But again, I hope that school psychologists have more of an awareness of it after the past several months, when we have had laws such as the don't say gay law in Florida that has prohibited conversations around specific identities, gender identities, as well as family constellations and determining what identities are okay and not okay within schools. That is political. And so the personal is political, the political is personal, and all of it is wrapped up within the profession. So we need to be paying attention to it and seeing this as advocacy in particular as a core school psychology competency because of the impact that it has on our work, as well as the students that we serve, just getting into that some more. Totally agree with you. And school boards definitely the hotbed of it. And I know from looking in social media spaces that there are school psychologists who are involved in their unions, involved in their school boards, and in local advocacy. Thank you. That work is so incredibly important. But continuing to have those conversations and more models of school psychologists doing this work. Yeah, I, I feel as though in on some of these um, politicized in that in a negative way, sort of um, manipulated conversations about like you know, oh, they're trying to do this with SEL. They're trying to sexualize children. Or school psychologists can play such an important role in just kind of basic psychoeducation for on on what contributes to wellness in childhood and what mm -hmm. helps people. Um, be mentally healthy, and um, and maybe in in a lot of time in a lot of schools and a lot of places we haven't really had um, enough opportunity to do that to just get in front of parents and teachers and and just talk about mental health and talk about wellness and um, 
psychoeducation because I feel as though it's just like sometimes so semantic. If people could just mm -hmm. understand that the words that they're using as weapons are not relevant to our same shared goal. You know, we all want our children to be well and healthy and raised with love and, you know, safe to grow and be themselves. But I just feel like the words are the weapons that people are using. Yes, people are getting caught up in the words and a lot of the words are being divorced of their original meaning. And so that's why it's important for school psychologists to be aware of, because a lot of social justice language in particular is being weaponized. And it's important for us to have the words, to have the understanding, to see these attacks for what they are and that they are creating more oppressive environments within our schools and understanding the relationship between oppression as a form of trauma and the impact on mental health. And so when we look at um, oppress systemic oppression and viewing that through the lens of trauma, uh, Dr. Tim O'Brien Davis described three criteria to consider. And so one is the repeated nature or the chronicity of it. Last time I was here, I talked about microaggressions and kids, kids of minoritized identities experience microaggressions on a regular basis when they're in school settings from other students, from the teachers and other adults that are there. It's also present within their environment in terms of what identities are celebrated and which ones aren't, who's represented and who, who isn't in that space. So we, it's a chronic impact and so it's a, it's a recurrence. The second criteria to consider is who is perpetrating, uh, causing this harm. And within schools, it's individuals that the student is close to and that they believe that they could trust. Typically teachers, it could be peers that they often consider to be friends. And so it's not coming from some stranger, it's they're receiving these microaggressions and oppressive harm from individuals that they know. And then the last criteria is, well, what happens afterwards? Is it, well, is it happening in public? Is there any type of intervention? And these microaggressive experiences often happen within in the public. So other students are able to see it. Other adults are witnessing, people may not intervene. But even when kids of minoritized backgrounds are seeing how other kids are being treated. So the unfair application of disciplinary policies or who gets selected to be in the advanced placement, that's um, a microaggression and oppression that they're seeing as well. And so when we consider all three of conditions of oppression as trauma, we see them very much within schools. And so we know that this is happening, but we mandate that students attend schools. When we think about compulsory education laws, if they are not there, families are getting in trouble. And all of these things are happening to kids. But in response to the stress and the trauma that they're receiving, we're teaching them coping skills to get by. But are we ever having conversations with them about where does this come from? That you, this microaggression isn't about you individually, but it is a reflection of racism or of sexism or of heterosexism or transphobia, where this is rooted from. But all they know is that they're getting attacked and in the absence of having conversations around oppression, 
kids are internalizing it and thinking that there's something wrong with them. And so I often use the metaphor of the frog in boiling water, and we're creating this environment where kids are essentially, those, they're the frogs in the water being cooked to death because they're experiencing these aversive environments and microaggressions from preschool for some populations. And so for some, they may jump out of the water, they may get pushed out, right? Those are the kids who are getting suspended or they have, they have that natural reaction to oppression such as anger, but then they're punished for it, right? And those kids are repeatedly disciplined and eventually pushed out of the school system. But for others, they're just there and their energy gets sapped and it's straining. And so we have the power to control this and to change it a little bit. We may not be able, school psychologists alone, we may not be able to like turn off the stove and make the water not boil, but we can do more to support, to try to change this environment altogether so that it isn't as harmful. And that's why we need to make the switch over to healing. And so the tenants, I, well, when I look at healing, I often refer to the work of the Radical Healing Collective, Dr. Helen Neville, and the other psychologists within that group. And radical healing in the sense is that something dramatically different has to be done if we want to see change in our social circumstances. And this form of healing is grounded in five tenets critical consciousness, the awareness of oppression and feeling the ability to change your environment, the concept of radical hope, to be able to envision something that is beyond your current circumstances and not just hope for a brighter future for yourself, but a future for the collective, which we touched upon as well. Strength and resistance, which I highlighted, that when we think about the social movements that we've had in this country and the rights that different minoritized groups were able to get, they didn't get it just by being resilient or by being patient. When we think of, well, June is Pride Month. We think about Stonewall. Pride was a riot. When we think about the civil rights movement, when we think about disability activism and the dying on the steps of the Capitol, that resistance has always come through and that strength because feeling and experiencing oppression, it elicits a wide variety of emotions. It can cause internalizing distress. It could also cause righteous anger that could be destructive to an individual or a student, for instance, unless they're able to channel, channel it in some other type of way. And so using that strength and resistance as that driver for change. We draw upon cultural strengths because there are many ways in of being, of existing, that have been dismissed within our traditional education and mental health systems, but we need to bring those things back, that cultural authenticity, and then collectivism. And so those five tenets ground the concept of radical healing. And within this radical healing, we're sitting in the dialectic um, because we can't totally be caught up in oppression, but we can't have that toxic positivity either. Like everything is going to be great. Everything's going to be fine. We have to wrestle in that dialectic that not to be totally subsumed by the oppression around us, but not ignoring it either. And so how I came to this theme, in addition to the tenets that I highlighted, is that with the social justice goal within school psychology, and the goal is about four or five years old at this point, 
there's a greater awareness of equity issues among school psychologists and more awareness of the circumstances that minoritized students experience within schools and within their communities. That awareness is important, but what it has felt like to me is that we're getting caught up in this oppressive space and that when we see minoritized students, we're solely viewing them from the lens of their oppression without recognizing that Yes, minoritized communities experience oppression, but they have resisted consistently as well. And we could learn lessons from that. Kids need to learn about who has resisted and that they have a great history upon which to draw to give them strength to navigate their circumstances. And even as school psychologists in our professional practices, not just seeing students from that oppressive lens, but recognizing that they bring historical strengths as well and being able to envision a brighter future for them and not just see them limited by their circumstances. So I see the sense of healing and liberation as the next step on our social justice journey. We know what these equity issues are, but now we need to actually talk about the oppressive systems that cause the equity issues and then work collectively with students and families in that healing to change circumstances. I'm so glad that you're kind of steering and, and guiding our, our profession is in this because I, I it, even in, in my own district and whatnot, yeah, there's been lots of conversations about this environment and what's going on. And yeah, sometimes we go to these trainings and we're all kind of made aware of this and we talk about how this is going on. And then there's this like, okay, <laughs> like it's there and we're going to go out and do our best to stop it. And there's no, like, what's the next step? So it seems like that's what you have in mind, you know, and as you're going into your NASP presidency of, of guiding beyond just like, okay, this is how things are. Like, these are things to do. <laughs> right. And this is not how it could be either. And so I think about healing for the sense of school psychologists also, um, as we sit in that dialectic of being caught up in our circumstances right now, all of what we think of special education laws, when we think about policies and practices that we have to adhere to, when we think about the high ratios and the workforce shortages, it's easy to get overwhelmed by this. And so it may feel sometimes that sense of toxic positivity that we could get through, we're great. Yes, we could do this. We need to sit in that dialectic and recognize that we could envision a brighter future for ourselves in school psychology practice as well, because the things that constrain our practice and the number one thing I hear about is really our involvement in special education that takes up an inordinate amount of our time that even within the expanded role of the practice model, there are significant barriers to school psychologists doing that work because of how other people see them and how in many places, our involvement in special education is codified within the law. But this wasn't always the case. There was a point in time that special education law didn't exist either and that the role of school psychologists were different. And so that's why I think about radical healing for ourselves is that yes, we need to be able to cope, to navigate our existing circumstances, but we should never lose sight or think that we 
that what is is what always will be because at one point it never was in the first place. <laughs> and so how can we also re-envision a future for ourselves and the conditions that we need to thrive and best support kids and engage in that advocacy be tuned into our history, know how other school psychologists have resisted that role to again, create something different for our profession. So I think healing is as much for the kids that we serve, but we need to have something to be hopeful and optimistic about also. That that radical hope, authentic healing, which is the theme of, of my presidential year and the 2023 NASP convention, it is going to be markedly different, like to turn it on its head. But can we give ourselves permission to do that visioning? And that I understand fully of the day-to-day -day tasks that we are involved in and all that we need to do, whether we are in pre-K, working primarily in pre-K through 12 schools, myself on the university end, because it's sometimes hard to imagine and envision but I think that we have to, we owe it to ourselves, we owe it to the students that we serve because what is happening right now is not tenable. That I see the messages from individuals leaving the field um, after not having been in there for so long. What is it about the way that we practice or work that pushes people out? And can we imagine ourselves doing anything different? Do we even ask ourselves that question or give permission to do so? It doesn't always feel that way. And Eric, I saw you, <laughs> I see you nodding. That is so important. You know, here I am, I'm, I'm, I think just finished year 31 as a school psychologist and I'm pretty much a, you know, a, a rule follower, go with the flow sort of person. And the field is so vastly different than it was 30 years ago. And yet so much is still the same. And, and so as you're saying this, I'm like, wow, yeah, so much needs to change. And, um, you know, it's it's an amazing field. I, I love what we do, but your vision and the things you're saying, you know, are so crucial. Um, there, I'm sure everybody has moments where you go, oh man, can I, can I stick it out? You know, this is a tough field. Um, we're up against a lot of barriers um, systemically, internally, not only within our, our own buildings or not only within the, the larger systems and the, um, the states and things, but within our own schools. And there are so many things for us to try to address, you know, but, mm -hmm. but I think the way you're saying this, like there are things we can focus on that will move the field forward and things that we can focus on that will help us uh, collectively. I love what you said about um, helping uh, you know, the, the most marginalized person helps all of us, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so when we focus on those kinds of things, it impacts the field um, more broadly. Um, I'm just really inspired. So, I, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm enjoying <laughs> hearing what you have to say. And, and I also think, you know, being in the field this long, when I was a graduate student, the theme of our program in 1987 was celebrating diversity. And so this was, you know, this was our thing. We're going to recruit diverse candidates. We're going to celebrate diversity. We're going to move the needle forward. And I'm not sure we've moved very far 30 years later, you know, mm -hmm. 
And so we need this. We need these visions. We need that pushing, pushing back against certain things and, and moving forward in others. Because otherwise we sit here 30 years later and go, not much has changed. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I and as you talk about how we historically celebrated diversity or we're trying to diversify the profession, but we don't necessarily talk about the reasons why this is important. And that's where the critical consciousness piece. And I mentioned that before to help students of minoritized backgrounds. It helps to buffer the effects of oppression on them because they're less likely to internalize it because they recognize that this is oppression. This is not about me personally. But at the same time, school psychologists need that critical consciousness as well because a lot of the work we do around diversity, social justice, equity, it's been decoupled from its anti-oppressive roots. And so when we talk about, we want a profession that's more diverse so that it mirrors the school age population. Okay, that is important, but why? What does it mean to be a member, to be from a racially and ethnic minoritized group when you are in a profession like school psychology, which is predominantly white? And so talking more about the systems in which we're embedded. So again, we, we should care about race because we're considering experiences of racism. And when we think about disability diversity, experiences of ableism, gender experiences of sexism. And so that's what we need to look at because we're focusing on these identities to be celebratory, but we're decoupling these identities from the systems in which they're embedded. And it's important for us to take that critical lens to recognize how the equity issues that we are addressing in schools are undergirded by intersectional racism, ableism, sexism, heterosexism, right? And if when we recognize that these are the forces that are driving it, we could recognize that these equity issues are a symptom, but we still have to address the root cause. And we also, because we're able to recognize these root causes, we are attuned to the ways that they may show up in other spaces within school psychology, the profession itself, but even when districts are trying to engage in some type of reparative work, if you're doing that disconnected from the oppressive root causes, you could end up recreating a new system, but that still produces the same inequitable outcomes. And so the conversation and why I keep on going back to the sense of critical consciousness is because school psychologists need that to understand what's going on right now. And I wanna go back to the point that Rebecca highlighted around social emotional learning, mental health screenings, how those have been areas under attack and a lot of misconceptions around it. But the reason being is because it's gotten caught up in racist, heterosexist, transphobic rhetoric, right? And so by having that sense of critical consciousness, it also helps us to be more aware of how we view the victims of oppression or who do we consider to be the victims of oppression. That racism in this instance isn't just harming minoritized populations. Racism is something that hurts everybody because right now we are seeing how, well, racism and sexism and heterosexism, 
that is limiting mental health services, not only to minoritized youth, but for all kids and the impact that it'll have. And so with that sense of critical consciousness, I would like to think, or I hope school psychologists thinking about these equity issues will change, that we're not doing this because of these poor minoritized kids. We're doing this and we need to be anti-oppressive because it's for everyone's benefit. Those who hold privileged identities also are harmed by oppression. And our profession itself is being harmed by it. So I, I hope that as we view all of these issues within context and recognize that they have a root cause, that it's all grounded in oppression and replicating these oppressive systems within schools, that we're mobilized, better mobilized to fight against it because we recognize the attacks for what they are. And so we're not just like, oh, well, mental health is great. And this is why SCL is important. We need to talk about that. Absolutely. SCL is important because it benefits students and it helps to prevent, um, it helps to create a more anti-oppressive environment because it is providing students with the critical thinking skills to understand what's happening around them, to engage in dialogue with each other, to be accepting of differences. And that's something that will combat oppression. And so being able to connect all of the dots in that way, social justice is everybody's business. And I hope that that's a takeaway that people have after this year as well. That's so important. And I, I see exactly what you're describing too, where there's conversations about equity and, you know, diversity and, but in this, then the, the same people in these positions of, of power and people that are, you know, working within the district level, um, at the same time, they, they want to ban books or they want to not talk about history in the in the way that you know they they want to tiptoe around and exclude certain things um and don't understand like the disconnect between that and that i think that that's hard because yeah i i don't i don't know how to <laughs> how do you get to people how, how do you have that conversation where you know people are are saying equity 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 yet but we don't want to make white kids uncomfortable. So we're not going to talk about, um, you know, slavery in the manner. We're not going to talk about how the country was kind of, you know, that was embedded. Sure. sure. And so I think it's understanding your current circumstances and doing what you can within them. And I often draw upon the social justice, sorry, the advocacy competencies from the American Counseling Association. And within those advocacy competencies, it focuses on three levels of advocacy, that client student level, then looking at the school or the district level and then public arena. And within those three areas, we consider advocacy on behalf of, in a space where school psychology has traditionally been comfortable, we're comfortable advocating on behalf of groups. But then from a social justice standpoint, how do we advocate alongside groups and not center ourselves, but really use our privilege due to our the social identities that we hold due to our professional roles to create the space for those who are minoritized to be able to speak for themselves. And I highlight those three levels because typically when people think of advocacy, they may solely think of the public arena. 
that we need to be out there, whether it is demonstrating, legislative advocacy is part of it, um, protests are absolutely part of it as well. But you may not be in a professional environment that enables you to do that. You can't help kids if you don't have a job. That's real. But we also consider those other two levels. And I want to focus on how do we engage in social justice advocacy at the student level. And I go back to what I said before about how do we talk to students about their current circumstances. That you may not be able in your school, your state, your district to have a pride flag or an ally symbol, to have Black Lives Matter or some other visible form of allyship. But the conversations that you do have with a minoritized student, that you are helping them to understand that what they're experiencing is grounded in oppression and that they are not flawed as a human being, but they are within a flawed system that does see them as less than. And here are the evidence of it and letting the, and teaching them about oppression for students of color having conversations about racism and microaggressions for students um, of different gender identities, talking about issues of cis sexism as well and tying it to what they're experiencing it so that they develop that critical consciousness. Again, it, it helps to buffer them from internalizing these deficit narratives about themselves, but it also gives them a leverage for change. And so what are the ways that they can resist, right? That I mentioned anger and frustration before as normal reactions to oppression. Having conversations with students about that, that your reaction, how you feel in this moment, totally get it. But what are some ways that we could take that anger and frustration in a way that is not causing you harm? Because the feelings aren't wrong but the way that they may manifest within schools may put students in a position where they're more likely to be punished. And so being real with them about that and how do we navigate with that and how can we channel that energy elsewhere? And so that may be supporting students' advocacy, standing beside them if they say that they wanna write a letter to the school board or talk to the principal, just being next to them when they do that. And so taking that energy and helping them to identify their levers of change. And so that's one way that we're able to engage in advocacy when you're within a system where you may not be able to engage in those public policy and those public arena type actions. There are multiple ways that we could fit in. And I know that sometimes we may feel powerless, but even our individual conversations with a student or group of students who are minoritized, us empowering them could do so much. And so I think we need to recognize that and own it. We can make a huge impact in our individual service work, even in assessment, how we write reports, the language that we use and using system-centered language. So instead of talking about at-risk students, students who have been, the student has been placed at risk because of economic marginalization, because they were in a school district where, which was underfunded and had limited access to reading to contextualize their circumstances. That's a form of advocacy as well, because in your written word, it's framing that this problem 
that we are evaluating is not inherent to the student, but rather it's the result of a student's maladaptive circumstances and making sure that that language is there for others to understand. Yeah, you just reminded me so much of uh, the things Dr. McClure has talked about with deficit thinking and how often we coach our assessments of students. There's some field and we're going to try off to another uh, something that, you know, is looking at them as if there's something wrong with them rather than, um, you know, rather than looking at strengths they have as well, but also looking at, um, you know, at them from deficit. Sorry, Eric. I think you were, was he breaking up for everybody else? I was, I guess he was. I wasn't sure if it was just me. I was looking at everyone's screens. I'm like, I hope people are still moving. <laughs> Sorry, Eric. I think you're frozen. So we, we missed much oh. of that. But I'm checking out. Am the, I um, yep. Now you're back. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I was just, uh, my thought was, you know, Dr. McClure said much, Dr. Byron McClure, about deficit thinking and how we often approach our assessments from, you know, with the child. Um, and that impacts how we view them and how we place them and uh, how that impacts their education. Absolutely. And um, something that was said earlier about the power of words, that the words that we choose to use to describe students are incredibly powerful. Um, consistent with that theme of deficit thinking, shout out to Byron McClure and Kelsey Reed for the work that they're doing in that area. That's where critical consciousness comes in to be able to recognize the ableism that is deeply embedded within our profession. And we talk about race a lot, which I think is appropriate when we consider the role that race plays within the United States and deeply embedded in US history, but oppression is intersectional. And the other part of school psychologist's bread and butter, when we think about how the profession has grown in the US, it has been with the rise of compulsory education with everybody coming to school, we're seeing disabled students now that were previously at home what to do with them, and then fully put into place with special education law. But all of that has embedded this medical model of disability, that disability is something that is inherent to a person, and that the role of psychologists and medical providers is to rehabilitate that person to heal them. And so that is deeply embedded within the work that we do as psychologists. And that's a conversation that we rarely, if, if ever, have about how we've internalized and adopted this medical model of disability. And as such, we don't talk about disability as a social identity. Um, we don't talk about this, we may not really be thinking about disability advocacy or disability rights and may have very narrow parameters of what we expect students with disabilities to be able to accomplish, that we may be focusing on just equity and remediation as opposed to, again, true liberation, which is what are the conditions that are needed for the students to live their most authentic life and allowing them to be able to set and define the goals as opposed to us coming in and, and doing that. And that very much relates to deficit thinking, that our beliefs around students' capacity are socially constructed, that we, our expectations that we have about students are very much tied to the identities that they hold. 
race being one, gender and ability being another one. And so how do we challenge how oppression has shown up in school psychology, how deeply embedded it is within our professional practices? Because part of healing is acknowledgement of the past. So uh, somewhat of a past orientation so we can know how to undo the harm. What are the harms that we've caused so we know how to undo them to move forward to a brighter future? So many good things. I know uh, we saw Nick's comment and I think we all commented, mic drop, you know, just <laughs> so many great thoughts here. Yeah, Rebecca was um, talking about we need to cut out a couple sign, uh, sound bites uh, of, of all these amazing things that you're saying, because as I'm hearing it, it just, it makes so much sense. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. Um, so I think that, oh yeah, a lot of people are kind of sitting here getting the, those moments of, of clarity with, with what you're saying. And so, yes, thank you. <laughs> oh, not a problem. Not a problem. And I'm looking, I can't believe time has been going by so quickly. <laughs> This hour has been this hour has been flying by, um, but I think there's some may think that the idea of hope or radical hope may be overly idealistic. Um, but I think of myself as a black woman within the profession and as a black woman in leadership, about to be in less than two weeks the second person of color to have served as NAS president, right? And so when we look at the history of the profession, we talk a lot about special education, how it has created like this resegregation of schools when we think about disproportionality with regards to discipline and special education and how school psychologists have contributed to it. Yet we still see school psychologists of color still within the profession, even a profession that has historically caused harm to us and as I see pointed out in the chat by Nick, a profession in which individuals of minoritized backgrounds actively experience harm from others in the profession. But yet we're here and yet we stay. And why is that? Because we know that our history of people of color for any minoritized background is not one solely of oppression, it's one of strength. And that there are many ways historically that individuals have resisted. Within school psychology, focus on that a little bit from Albert Beckham, the first black person to use the title of school psychologist. School psychologists, and as a black woman, I'll highlight black school psychologists. I'll highlight other um, female school psychologists of color who through their research, their practice and advocacy have consistently resisted that narrative. So at no point, have minoritized populations, students within our schools, individuals within our profession have solely been bystanders and letting oppression happen to them. They have consistently resisted. Why? Because we know that this future can be different. And even not just for us in the immediate, what it'll look like in the future. If I had this conversation, um, this, is, this year um, will be my 10th year post degree. I would not have imagined school psychology to be at the place where we are now when I entered the profession, where I was pushing hard to have issues of cultural diversity discussed. And 
it was still looked at as a novelty or receiving messages that that really didn't matter. But here we are today, but persisted in that and within the profession through graduate school to be president of NAS because I always believed that something could be different, that while school psychologists have been complicit in a lot of the harms that we see within schools, I have always firmly believed that we have the knowledge, the skills, and the capacity, and the talents to make it different. So that's why I've stayed. And that's why school psychologists from other minoritized backgrounds have stayed with the field because we know it can be different. And so I guess I say all of that is that I am here because of an unrelenting sense of hope where there have been many times where I could have been pushed out of the profession or I received messages that I didn't belong, but have resisted against that. And not just for me personally, but I think about it for those school psychologists who are coming in after me. And so if there's nothing else that people take away, that yes, this may be super idealistic, but look at any minoritized person within the profession and just get a drop of the hope that they have that why they stay. And if they're able to stick it out and think about a brighter future for school psychology, everyone else can too. So yeah, let's get to, let's get to dreaming. Let's right. get to hoping. And with that, let's some, get some real healing. We could do this. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Malone. I know we're, we're, uh, just about out of time. Um, Nick, uh, Nick's participation was great. <laughs> it was always a pleasure to have him. And yeah, he had such nice com uh, comments. I yeah. love his enthusiasm for the profession. Yes. Yes. And I, I, I don't know if everybody knows um, he's been commenting and engaged in the profession as an undergraduate for years, you know, a couple of years prior to um you know, starting any grad programs, he's always been sort of here, um, knowing what he wanted to do. So it's great to have him. All right. Uh, I'm going to look for any last minute comments, questions, anything, but um, thank you so much for, for agreeing to come back on. And it was just a great conversation. And I so, so look forward to your presidency and, and seeing, you know, where NASP is going to go with your, um, your leadership. So, I mean, you've always been involved with NASP leadership, but now this is, this is very cool um, that you're willing to go and take this on. So thank you. Um, our thank next you for having me. Our next episode is 626. Um, I know we're talking about ACT as well. So I know Rebecca's real excited. <laughs> so excited. We're going to have Dr. Tamar Black, who just wrote a book. Um, and I believe the title is ACT for Treating Children. All right. I'm not seeing anything else pop up, but um, as always, the conversation continues. So uh, thank you, everybody. And um, yeah, and, and that was interesting. Yeah. Um, with Nick, I didn't even know, Nick, that you are in graduate school now because um, I know that you had been commenting um, in undergrad, which was so cool that we had an undergrad psychology major um, being involved. So congrats on, on being in it. I hope that um, I hope that they treat you well and, and realize how awesome you are and you're going to do good things. So. Thanks for always hanging in there with us, Nick. <laughs> All right. Bye, everybody. Good night, everybody. Thanks again, Good Celeste. Night.